0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkinett in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Hagliano, who is uh, in the remote office in Charlottesville. How are things there, Frank?
1: Oh, David, it's a beautiful kind of seventy-two degrees here today. So <laughs> I, I know people really want my weather reports, but, but it's no, actually, no, it's it's
0: very a uh, tumble here and uh, perfect. Uh, yeah, we're in the quiet lull between the festival and students showing up, which is always one of my favorite times of year here in, in Edinburgh. So uh, interesting times. Right. Uh, The election in 2024 is rapidly approaching now that we've had the first Republican debate and and all kinds of things. I guess we're officially in election season, although it seems like we're always in election season. And I ran across an interesting article that we're going to use as the basis for our discussion today. It's by David uh, Rothkopf in uh, the the, uh, Daily Beast, and it's entitled, Here are 11 Wild Things That Could Happen in 2024 Election. Uh, and so he has lays out a series of 11 scenarios of weird and wild things that could happen during the election um, that could throw a wrench into what is already proving to be a very uh, unusual election in some regards, especially with all the uh, indictments of, of former President Trump, candidate Trump, what have you. Uh, so what we thought we would do is go through uh, these 11 scenarios that he lays out. Uh, And then provide some historical commentary, because it's a a fascinating little article, but it doesn't really uh, provide any historical antecedents for it. So we're going to sort of flesh that part of the story out. Right. So Frank, we're just going to go through these, and I want you to tell me both if we can get some antecedents, but also, you know, how likely you think these are of actually playing out, because some of these are
1: a bit wilder than others. Yes, because we're we've proved over the course of this podcast how good we are at predicting things. So yes, let's do that <laughs> to be sure. Yeah, we're not. well... Can no, I, but I, can, I, can, yes, Frank. Go ahead. Can, can I just say a, a couple of observations, David? One is um, several of these seem to overlap to me. They're they're in mm. a broad category of uh, Trump being removed from the race for for some reason or other. And so so I mean we'll take we'll t- take these in order, but but I think they do fit into a couple of broad categories. The other thing I want to ask you about before we start though is the essay says. The stakes are higher for this election than any election since 1860, and I'm certain we that somebody said that in 2020 and 2016. Do we say this at every single election?
0: We've said Not this we, in every as election, a culture. Yes, I think we've said this in a lot in recent elections. There have been elections in the past in my lifetime where people said eh, consequences, or where the outcome was pretty clear going into it. What the outcome would be so like 1984 you know that looked like a fairly clear cut deal of who was going to win that election right some of the elections in the you know 92 96 i don't think anybody thought those elections were were the biggest election of their lifetime and those consequential uh but uh yeah I do, we do seem to have some
1: hyperbole in the current election climate uh, um should we be worried about this in the sense that if you cast things in apocalyptic terms, Mm. doesn't that become a self-fulfilling prophecy? So, so one one of the problems with our culture, it seems to me, the political culture, certainly in the last three election cycles. So I'm good 2016, uh, 2020. And the current one Mm. is if we cast things in these terms, the stakes are higher than any election since 1860, that raises the temperature in Mm. such a way that possibly contributes to some of the problems we're having both, around around elections and after Mm -hmm. elections? Well, I
0: think part of it's the rhetoric, but part of it is that the two candidates are, and the people supporting the candidates, are further apart than they were in some other elections, right? So if you look at, you know, Bill Clinton and, 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 I don't know, George Herbert Walker Bush, they had many differences on policy issues, but they were closer on many things than 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 our current set of political leaders. And and I think there was a large sense that no matter who won, things were going more or less head in the same trajectory. Um you know, I think there are meaningful differences in, in what the you know outcomes are going to be in this case. So it means some ways it is hyperbole, and it obviously the media has incentives to do that, but uh on the other hand, I think there are a real significant difference. The gulf between the two candidates on a number of issues is quite profound.
1: I I, I agree with you about that, but I'm just not sure this kind of framing necessarily helps us. Yeah, and, and
0: 1860. If that's your rubric, that didn't work out so well. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: So yeah, let's hope it's not that.
1: Anyway, I, I don't I don't want to belabor things. Take it away. We
0: we will yeah we'll, we will see in retrospect whether this is or is not the the biggest since 1860. Um, all right, so so can, uh, scenario number one: Trump is disqualified, uh, and this is citing the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, and I'm probably the one who should, should explain. I guess this one, since it's from uh, my century, um, the the Fourteenth Amendment is, you know, the most probably most important constitutional amendment we've got, um, arguably, uh, but it's also one of the more complicated ones because it does a number of different things. One of the things it does, though, in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it says um, that if you have taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and then have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution or given aid or comfort to the enemies of the United States, you are disqualified from holding office again, either at the federal level or at the state level. Um, and this is done, uh, as one imagine, in the aftermath of the Civil War, to disqualify former Confederates, people who had previously held office uh, before the Civil War, and then supported the Confederacy in a variety of different ways, either by serving in the military, Confederate government, what have you, from holding office again. Um, and it says that Congress can can with uh, remove that disability from people if it so chooses. You know, and this was. Uh, the argument here with with Trump is that Trump supported what was, everyone has called the insurrection on January 6th, um, you know, after taking the oath of office to support the Constitution, uh, and therefore has disqualified from running. And it seems as if there's already some uh, lawsuits uh, in a variety of places, including in New Hampshire, to take Trump off the ballot, uh, citing this. Uh, provision in the constitution. uh So, what do you think about what do you think about this scenario, Frank?
1: Um, as a matter of law, I don't know because I'm I'm simply not expert enough in it yeah. to, to comment knowledgeably. I I, I can't render a, a verdict. Yeah. As a matter of politics, I think it's a terrible idea. Mm. Um, just because I think that um, Trump's supporters. And not only Trump supporters, but I, mm. I um I, I think a, a large swathe of the electorate that's lar- that's bigger than Trump support mm. would feel that this is unfair and it's taking mm. it, it would be unfair judicial intervention and it's basically um it's taking the uh the election away from the voters in such a way um as to just be manifestly unfair. And I think it would I I think it would exacerbate, you know, for all the uh hyper hyperbole around the election, which we were just talking about, uh and, and in 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 US politics at the moment, I think that this would make things an order of magnitude worse. So I hmm. think that uh, um and there are others um there are other scenarios we're about to discuss, which, which pose real problems for Trump, mm. uh, particularly legally. And uh, but I think this would appear to be changing the rules uh, to to disqualify President Trump. I don't think that's what it would be. I mean, I think I, I think there is a legal, yeah, because the pre-existing rule is pretty old, right? I, I <laughs> think there is a, a kind of legal case to answer here, mm. or a constitutional case here. But I think the you know we've got to balance, kind of, if you will an ideal world with the practical world of politics. And I think practically this would be catastrophic for the country. Yeah. Uh, What do you you
0: think? Well, I think that you make a very good point that, that, that. If Trump supporters show up on election day and, and don't have that option on the ballot. That could have interesting outcomes, um, unpredictable outcomes, um, it's intriguing this has only been it was obviously used in the context of the civil war it's only been used uh once since it was used uh to uh keep uh Victor Berger of Wisconsin who was a socialist um he was kept off the ballot because he had uh, been perceived as as supporting the enemies of the United States by opposing US entry into World War 1 um and he was kept out of of the House for for uh, two years as a consequence of this and later they let him in but uh it's been used that but it has been used in the past couple of years for some very low level elected officials who were actually at the insurrection on january 6th
1: um, well and so, I, I, yeah well i think one of the interesting aspects of this is it would complicate the legal questions around january 6th that are ongoing in other cases because mm-hmm. whether trump was an insurrectionist is mm-hmm. is is I mean obviously that that's been litigated to some extent and will continue to be so but I think there is a material difference between President Trump's actions or inactions on that day and the actions of the kind of people who are actually being jailed right now mm-hmm. um for you know storming Congress All right So, okay. so I, 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 yeah so I, I I think I I don't think this is likely and I think it will be a huge mistake.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, the, the the legal the legal experts I've read on this question su- suggest that it's it's unclear who has standing to file these lawsuits. But anyway, we will see how that unfolds. All right. Scenario
1: number two: there is a candidate with a health scare. Um, I think this is highly likely, and in fact, hmm. I think it could happen to both candidates. Um. Oh, yes. You know. Well, they're both old men. Yeah, to be and, sure. And, 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 and although Biden is several years older than President Trump, and Trump makes much of that. I mean, much of the criticism where age is concerned seems to be coming from the right, directed at Biden. And it's a kind of article of faith, at least uh in, in some uh right wing media that Biden mm. is senile and everything else. Um, you know, Trump is obese, mm. uh and and undoubtedly it does not seem to have a very healthy diet. I mean. Uh, the the likelihood that one or both of them will have a major medical event, you know, men, yeah. around eighty in the United States have health events <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, I you know, and as, as you know, I spoke to a political scientist here a few weeks ago who thinks this is highly likely. Now mm-hmm. we don't know, but and there are. Um, do you want to rehearse some well, precedent statements? Well,
0: so I mean, part of it. You know, when we think about the last election. Trump had COVID during the campaign, and yeah, had a pretty right. bad case of it. Um, you know, I think it depends in part on what kind of medical uh, event it is. It depends on whether the public knows about it and the extent to which the public knows about it. I think that shapes things, uh, and whether they, they see it as a, you know, ability to, shapes the ability of the person to take office. But in terms of antecedents, uh, there's a couple of, of, you know, elections that have been really shaped by the health of the candidate. Uh, 1872. Um, and this is pretty bad health uh Horace Greeley who was the uh liberal Republican and Democratic candidate for president uh was very sick during the campaign um doesn't win the election but then dies before the electoral college meets um so that's obviously a very bad health situation for him uh, and that grew he didn't I mean, he didn't win, so his electoral votes actually got split between a number of different people as the electors tried to sort of figure out where to place them. Um, it didn't have a consequence in the election, but one can imagine a scenario in which that, that did happen. Um, a Couple of years later, uh, Chester Arthur, um, who becomes president when Garfield gets shot, uh, he's in progressively worse health uh, leading up into the 1884 election. He tries very hard to hide his health problems. Um, he goes out to Yellowstone to try to sort of give off a, an aura of health, uh, but people could tell who were near him saw that he was uh, losing weight um, and and was 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 fatigued more often than not, um, and that may have shaped the party's not choice to not nominate him for re-election in eighteen eighty four. Uh, because of his bad health. Turns out, and we didn't learn this until after he left the White House, he had Bright's disease, um, which is a um, kidney disease, which was, uh, and you may know this, uh, first uh, discovered at the uh, medical school at the University of Edinburgh. I did not know that. There's a little plaque plaque to it right next to Addison's disease, uh, which is another presidential disease. All presidential diseases were found at the University of Edinburgh. something um but there's a plaque to do it on our building um i don't know whether this is health but i guess it's sort of health teddy roosevelt of course got shot in 1912 when he was running for president um i don't know whether that had an impact on the election but it's a, a an amazing story um and then wilson in 1920 obviously had a stroke and thought he was going to get the nomination again uh for president um obviously that that, he, that didn't happen but uh he worked very hard to try to recover from that health incident to to run again.
1: Um, I mean, those are all interesting. I I think there are some more recent ones that might be a little more Mm. germane in terms of this particular scenario playing out. I mean, you're I'm glad you reminded listeners uh, that Trump had COVID Mm. (laughs) back in 2020 because that actually, I think worked could have worked in his favor. And maybe it did in the sense that because of the treatment he received at Walter Reed um, medical center. And, and uh, you know, he, he recovered pretty quickly. Um, And that of course fed a narrative, both that COVID might not be as bad as people feared. And and this was an article of faith among some of his supporters, but also of Trump's robustness and his kind of heroic nature. And so I think for Trump supporters, that was quite, you know, that probably enhanced his appeal. Um, So I think, illness can work that way. You'll remember that, you know, Hillary Clinton had pneumonia in 2016. Oh, that's right. Yes. Out of pneumonia and of course that, you know, was used to cast her as being incredibly feeble and weak and, and unable to to um be president. I mean that that didn't cost her the election but it certainly didn't help. Um uh, Eisenhower had a heart attack in 1955 before sure. running in '56, um, and again that that was okay. I think I, so. I think recovering from illness, I think the timing really matters. So mm. so um, I I think recovering from illness can can be an asset. I I, I guess Trump's COVID in 2020 is a little like FD, uh, TR, Teddy Roosevelt getting shot in 1912. <laughs> I think, uh, I think uh, it, only it, in the it, okay. Well, so in the sense that. It reinforced the view of the candidates mm. virility, frankly, in both yes. cases. You know, Trump wanted to leave the leave the hospital in a Superman shirt. I mean, they mm. they, they seriously talked about that. Um, now, that would have been ill judged, I think. But but this was so, so I think um, a medical crisis can be used to strengthen a candidate's appeal, mm. depending on how they if they recover from it. On the other hand. I think the way I read this 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 particular one and I realize mm. we're going to have to pick up the pace if we're going to get through 11 of these sure. I think I think I think we're talking something more catastrophic, something more along the mm. lines of of Wilson's stroke, mm. that I, I'm talking something that debilitates one or both of the candidates and prevents them from going on. Yeah. I think that is the, I think of all, of most of the things we're about to discuss, that's the most likely one. And yeah. what would happen then? I think the parties would then, it would have, depend on when they, it happened in the election cycle, yeah. would have to find a new candidate. And if well, it happened I right before really the election... Cases. Yeah.
0: Uh, is, is indicative of that, that, that there's
1: number, you know, the moment at which it
0: happens if they get sick and either, you know, are, are not no longer fit to be the candidate or heaven forbid, either of uh, them dies from the, you know, uh, illness. Um, you know, it really does depend whether it's before the nomination, after the nomination, you know, after the election day, before the electoral college, all of those things that lead to slightly different outcomes potentially. Um, so the timing I think really does matter okay option three scenario three Trump is convicted of one or more crimes which I don't know how fast courts work it's unclear whether that will happen in terms of of, uh, this upcoming election what do you think Brian
1: well they're talking about one of the cases beginning next March now aren't they Um, you know so in the middle of everything Right in the middle of everything. Um, and I, I I, think it could happen. I, I think it certainly could happen. Um, whether he's set, you know, I don't think he would be necessarily convicted and sentenced prior to um, the election. Or if he were, he would certainly appeal. So I don't, in mm-hmm. other words, I don't think although people have talked about this, he's likely to be running for president from a jail cell yeah i think i think that is unlikely for all kinds of reasons um and and the example that's always used for that is eugene, eugene debs and you can talk about that in, sure. in a second if you want but but i think the evidence suggests and this really is unprecedented we don't really have a good precedent for this at least as far as i can think of mm-hmm. you might have other views but i don't think that among his most fervent supporters, this would be debilitating because I think no. the legal, you know, he's been indicted. We saw his mugshot. He's using his mugshot from Atlanta to to raise money. He thinks that's a positive thing. I think for his supporters, and I think that's an important qualification, this is not, you know, this doesn't um, render him ineligible. So, So I don't think conviction will either.
0: Yeah, I think he does have that sort of constant level of support that doesn't seem to
1: Waver one way or the other, anything that he does.
0: Uh, I think there's a limited
1: ceiling. I think there's a limited ceiling to it as well. But I think he's got a floor that he won't break through. What What do you think? I mean, what's your? Well, I mean, I think
0: yeah. So the the Debs example, just so everyone knows this example because it's been obviously in the news a lot. uh, Eugene Debs ran for president, I think, five times. The last time was in 1920. While he was in prison, um, he was in prison for violating the Espionage Act for. his opposition to the the first world war, he gets nearly a million votes uh in 1920, which is not as many as he got uh eight years before the last time he had run before that in 1912. Uh, but nearly a million votes when you're campaigning from a jail cell is uh yeah, that's pretty good. Uh it's you know 3.4% of the electorate. So uh uh you know, as, a socialist. Can, as a socialist, right? Um <laughs> Well, who also, I think, was somebody who have a very, you know, they have a right uh, very devoted contingent of supporters, at least in uh, 1912, 1920. Um, you know, being in prison, being convicted uh, does not constitutionally make him ineligible to be president, though. So uh, it may remove him, you know, may not have the right to vote for himself, uh, but he uh, still is ineligible to hold office. All right, number four, and this is I guess, connected to, to three in some ways. Trump could melt down and make his legal peril even greater.
1: Yeah, I think he certainly will do that. But, yeah. I, do, you know, I have nothing to add to what I said about yeah, it, whether yeah. he's convicted. I mean, I think the, the political dynamic is the same.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think judges are in a very hard position because, because um, you know, the odds of him saying something that that would get on any you know, of the rest of us in trouble with a judge um and thrown in jail or something for for violating the terms of our parole or um whatever the you know bail arrangement is um you know they they're, they're going to be very hesitant to do that midst of a person who is running for president so yeah odds are i think the odds are pretty high it's going to happen but it could be very messy
1: that's right i mean i think it's a little bit like the 14th amendment question we began with uh mm. because i think it would be very difficult for the, for a judge, any of the judges involved overseeing these cases mm. to throw him in jail for violating the terms of his, um, well, not parole, the, you know, the, basically of, of his release while he's a pending yeah. trial um, because he's a presidential candidate, you know, yeah. it, because it would appear to be, it, it's basically a, a more limited version of my, response to the 14th Amendment question at the yeah. beginning. It would appear to be the judiciary directly interfering with the election, and I think that would cause significant problems. But I think he will probably do things that would justify jailing him mm-hmm. uh, in, in the run-up to these these uh, trials. Yeah. But I think it's... Witness
0: I, tampering intimidation yeah, kinds of things. But I don't um,
1: think he's like any other um, suspect, frankly. Sure. It's a unique problem. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So <laughs> many unique problems. Right. Um scenario five. A new candidate could can enter the GOP race and catch fire. We've already got with the, you know, the whole cast of characters who are running right now. Um what do you think? Could a new person enter the race and and, and change the election? No. My answer is yes. My answer is <laughs> no. Yes. Well,
1: well, let me give you the no. Um I I just don't think so. I don't know who that would be. Um barring one you know, I think if there's a major medical event that that removes mm. President Trump from from um running, then that would change things. But apart from that, his lock on on the party seems to be such that nothing will move it. So, you know, we're having a kind of Ramaswamy moment right now after the mm-hmm. debate. and But, you know, he's still 40 points behind Trump. I, I mean, yeah. nobody is approaching him. I don't know who's not in the race who could catch fire and overtake Trump. But if you say yes, I'd be interested to hear who Well, that. I mean, I think
0: there's a long history of dark horse candidates emerging from nowhere to win races. Um, and, you know, that was more true in the 19th century where... Um, you know, candidates were picked at conventions. Um, you know, the first is is James K. Polk, who nobody knew who the hell he was when he you know was elected president or when he got the the nomination. Same was true with Franklin Pierce. Same was true um, to a lesser extent probably of Abraham Lincoln, who was not you know in the top five most important Republicans in the country, but got the nomination in eighteen sixty. Same is true with Hayes. Same is true with Garfield. Same is true with Harding. More recently, I think the same is true of Jimmy Carter you know nobody knew who he was at this point in the election you know in 1975 76 nobody knew who he was he had very little name recognition outside of georgia um and if you even you know, he even began the the democratic convention uh in in 1976 saying hi i'm jimmy carter and i'm running for president um just to make sure everyone knew who the hell you know and So I think there is a possibility of a dark horse candidate showing up uh, late, especially if Trump, but I think Trump dropping out or being eligible or something that has to happen for that to really transpire.
1: Yeah, to some extent, I think we're on the same page about this because I don't think it's possible unless something, uh, some extraneous event removes Trump from the race, because I think as long as Trump is in the race, that's not going to happen. All the examples you gave, you know, from the 1840s or the 1970s. Um, you know, Trump is probably the most well-known person on earth right now. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's very difficult for a dark horse to kind of um, come in and, and um, you know, uh, attract the media attention that would be necessary to do that um, unless Trump is removed from the race for some other reason, by, by some external event, I suppose. I All just right. don't see it. All right, speaking of... Trump being removed from the race, scenario six.
0: Trump flees the country. And Frank is laughing. Uh okay, why are you laughing, Frank? I mean, he says in the article this is not a very likely scenario. Uh but Trump does have a plane. He's got some friends in foreign places. He's got, you know, property here in Scotland and 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 friends in other less um desirable places necessarily. But uh you know not think uh, he's flee the country?
1: There's a line from a Warren Zevon song about, you know, I've got gas in the tank and a suitcase full of money from a Luxembourg <laughs> bank. Um, uh, I do not think he'll flee the country because, um, I mean, he joked, he himself joked about going to Russia, which is, mm. and it's interesting, he joked about Russia. Um, but I, I I don't think he's going to flee the country. He, um, despite um a clear attraction international attraction or interest when it comes to choosing his wives he seems very rooted in the united states and his life in america i don't think that that travel abroad or 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 living in exile Mm. would suit him um and i don't think he'll do it because i don't think he believes although i think he's probably worried about the legal consequences of Mm. some of his of some of the um cases he's facing i don't think he believes that he will that he's in real peril yet but I, I I don't think he's going to flee the country. Do you think he's going to flee the country? Well, I don't. Uh, on the one hand, no. But I think he,
0: I think you're right. He is very confident that he's going to win all of his legal cases. On the other hand, I think he is so mortified at the idea of being in prison. That he's going to, you know, when the, the that river is crossed, that, that a, a prison sentence is likely, who knows what he's going to do.
1: Right. I, I guess I would say because th- th- this is in uh, this list of things are possible election consequences. Mm. This goes back. I don't think he's going to be convicted and facing jail before the election. He may be convicted, mm. but he would appeal, etc. He might flee in 2027 mm. if he's actually lost the election facing. He's been convicted. His appeals have failed and they're getting ready to kind of size him up for a mm. jumpsuit. Uh, and take him away <laughs> then he might flee but i don't think he's going to flee in the context of the 2024 election
0: okay um yeah i mean just the historical plan of seasons for this that, that jumped out to me is is that lots of confederates in 1865 decided to get the hell out of dodge um and, and go other places uh, a lot of them went to cuba some of them went to brazil some went to mexico uh a bunch went to canada some went to the uk um because they feared they were going to be tried for treason or war crimes or both. Uh, and so there was a sort of mass exodus of, uh, of of certain elements of the political class then.
1: Yes, Jefferson grandson, uh, George Randolph, who was Confederate uh, Secretary of War, went to France mm.
0: for yeah. a few years. years.
1: But they, of course, fled after they lost, not prior to an election.
0: That's true. But, yeah, um, yes. Uh All right. Uh, Scenario seven, an extremist act of violence. All these are are very
1: hard to predict, but go ahead, Frank. uh, Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen a rise, a spike in political violence in the United States. And uh, there's some suggestion. I'd be interested to hear your view, Mm. David, as an expert on the 19th century, especially in the run up to the Civil War. There's there's some suggestion that this is a kind of return to the norm, that there's always uh, the period of relative political peace in the United States from 1945 until, I don't know, 2012 or whatever, you know, Mm. until this period was, was, is the, is the exception and that there's always been a kind of, there's been a low level and sometimes a high level of political violence around American elections uh, for much of American history. We saw the violence on January 6th. I think the potential for violence is quite, high mm. um i don't think and you and i talked about this in the run-up to the 2020 election um and we disagreed as, as i recall mm. i i i think the danger of violence on election day mm. probably isn't that great but i think the danger of just political violence more generally yeah. and how we define it we've done episodes on this we don't have to rehearse this is pretty high but and how it would affect the election, I. I simply can't yeah. say well, I, think, like, I hope election, I'm wrong about this. I,
0: I hope I'm wrong too. Uh the you know election day isn't what it used to be anyway in terms of really right. voting. If, so it's not the same phenomenon obviously in the 19th century there was a lot of violence on election day. Um you know one thing that just sort of struck me thinking about the campaign uh is 1968. Um yep. you know which which was a very chaotic campaign you know, with Lyndon Johnson first dropping out and then Robert Kennedy being assassinated in June of 68 and all the consequences uh, following on from that, um, you know, so so there's, I think, you know, the odds of, of an assassination either of one of the candidates or of some other kinds of political violence is higher now than it has been since the 60s. Um, I mean, hopefully we're both wrong about that, but that
1: seems to be uh a likely, you know, more likely now than it used to be. Do you think, David? Sorry, before you go on that 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 that, that an act of violence would change the course of the election, again, which is the context of this well, article.
0: I guess it depends on who is the target of the violence. If somebody
1: is assassinated, that's going to change the outcome of the election. Of course, sure.
0: Um if um you know, we, we've seen, and it depends on the nature of the, you know, political violence. So, you know, we've seen attempted kidnappings in recent years of political leaders. We've seen, you know, violence, which is not explicitly political, but is politically tinged, thinking about the, the shooting, uh, the you know, the racist shooting that happened uh, last week in Jacksonville, um, you know, which had political ramifications to it. Um, yeah, I think it, it depends on the scale and the scope and the target and the timing. Um, yes, uh, but but there is a. I, I think we're we're. If something happens in this coming year, I will not be uh, massively surprised by it. I'll be horrified, but but not surprised. Uh, scenario eight: intensified foreign election interference.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting one. Uh, I think we had certain interference in 2016. The record seems to show that whether it determined the course of the election or not, I think, is debatable. I mean, I yeah. I, I, I think that's as yet unclear. I think because of the awareness of that, there was particularly uh, there was particular um scrutiny in 2020 and I think despite the claims to the contrary the 2020 election was probably one of the cleanest elections we've ever had and and I think that that election officials were kind of aware of that possible interference um uh, I think there's a high incentive for certainly the Russian government to seek to influence the outcome of the election in Donald Trump's favor because that might be the thing that Mm. helps uh, tilt the war in ukraine their way if the united states withdraw support for ukraine that would be a, that would be a, a pretty significant event in uh in in that conflict uh so i think there's i think there's certainly incentive for interference uh and of course we don't know about other adversaries particularly china and others that hmm. might seek to I- influence uh the the election i do think people have become a little savvier about Mm -hmm. how they consume social media uh even than they were in 2016 but i i now i also think that's resulted in people not believing anything which is Mm -hmm. a different kind of challenge but i think people are a little more i I think the the uh, and i probably will regret saying this i think the ability to use social media um and influence the election the way that it seems that russia and some other adversaries in the united states did in 2016 isn't the same on the other hand it, you know it's like cheating in sport the cheaters are always ahead of the
0: <laughs> yeah
1: of the of the regulators so i you know they're, they're probably they could be doing things that we don't know russian government is a little distracted at the moment too so maybe their capacity to do it isn't what it what it was to be uh, sure eight years ago but I, I i think there will be an attempt um and i think this is just we know this from other elections and other elections that have been held mm-hmm. in, in Europe, for example, in, in recent years, that this is likely to happen. Uh, how much of an influence it has? I don't know. What about you?
0: Well, I mean, certainly there's, there's two kinds of election interference. One is the explicit election interference where a foreign government says we want candidate X to win, not candidate Y. Right. We can think that that's happened a lot, you know, going back to, to your century, you know, in in 1796, yeah. the French like explicitly they published letters saying yes. we want Thomas Jefferson to win. We think he is better than the you know John Adams. Now that didn't work out for for in that election or for the French or what have you. Uh, but there, there's that kind of election interference where a foreign government puts its thumb on the scale. Then there's the kind of stuff that happened in you know 2016. Um, you know, with Russia and whatnot, trying to shape the outcome of the election clandestinely. And in those kinds of scenarios, I think you have the situation of either that happening, which I think it's going to happen to some degree, but, you know, how extensively, but how extensively do we find out about it, right? And, and whether we find out about it before election day or after election day, and how much are the candidates complicit in that? You know, so if we find that can a candidate, i you know, is coordinating with the Russians to, to do various things, that's gonna have a very different spin to it than um otherwise. Um all right, scenario uh nine, which I guess is connected in some ways. A sudden major turn in the war
1: in Ukraine or in Russia's leadership. Um, I think this is possible, of course, in 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 the next uh, year and a half, I don't think it will affect the election very much. I, I, foreign pol- policy and, and foreign events very rarely mm. impact U.S. elections. They just don't penetrate that much. I think we now know that, you know, significant elements of the Republican Party, including President Trump, are particularly sympathetic to Russia and opposed to Ukraine. We know that, you um, uh, President Biden and and much of the American electorate are sympathetic to Ukraine, but but I don't think, unless that change dramatically affected thing events within the United States, mm. I, or people within the United States, I don't think I, I I think such a such a development is possible. I don't think it'll have much of an impact. Yeah, what do you think?
0: Um, I I think you're right. Foreign affairs generally have very little. Uh, to do with election outcomes. Um, You know, wars do, right? And the outcomes of wars have uh, effects on election outcomes. So we can think about 1864 in the middle of the Civil War, how well the Union Army is doing shapes whether Lincoln wins or not. We can think in 1868, uh, the Tet Offensive shapes that 1968. Sorry, I'm always living the <laughs> in 1968 with the Tet Offensive. That has a, an outcome, you know, that, that shapes that campaign in, in profound ways. Um, the Iranian hostage crisis in, in 79 and 80, I think that shaped the 1980 election in, in profound ways. Uh, but I think as a general principle, I think you're right that foreign policy, especially when there aren't any Americans directly involved. Um, all the examples I decided, of course, are ones where Americans to large numbers or small numbers are are directly involved, you know, unless it's something weird. Uh, and obviously these are all weird scenarios in some ways, uh, probably not so much.
1: That's right. I mean, the qualifier I was about to add to yours was was, uh, those examples you gave are all true, but they were all in conflicts that involved Americans and U S citizens directly. Whereas at the moment, the Ukraine war does not. Right um number 10 a natural disaster this could definitely influence the election and there are recent there are recent examples i think the best one is hurricane sandy in 2012 occurred in october 2012 hurricane season often uh coincides with election Mm. season in the united states especially because august september october when we have most of the hurricanes sandy was interesting because it happened in october it went up Mm. the east coast Uh, And New York was affected. And the reason uh, it was a devastating hurricane, but that's important as well, because, of course, that's where the media is centered. So so Mm -hmm. it was a big story for a very long time. The uh, natural disasters tend to, I think, favor the incumbent because the incumbent can appear presidential. You know, they, 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 there's a there's an advantage, you know, so so the 2012 and Sandy, for example, allowed President Trump, uh, sorry, President Obama, excuse me, mm. President Obama, to, you know, demonstrate presidential leadership and bipartisanship. He famously went to New Jersey and hugged Chris Christie or Chris Christie yeah. hugged him. They hugged each other. But, you know, they were rising above partisanship and rising above politics and helping out in a crisis, you get to wear your commander-in-chief windbreaker Mm. or whatever. Uh, I think natural disasters, um, a natural disaster could happen. I think if it does, and President Biden responds in a competent way Mm. it could help him, natural disasters can harm, or can certainly disrupt elections, especially if they happen on election, on Mm -hmm. or around election day, they can disrupt the voting. Given the controversies we've now have and i expect we'll have next year over how ballots are counted and how things are handled anything that seems to disrupt that process will feed a narrative of skullduggery and possibly undermine the the uh legitimacy of the vote in the views of the of whichever uh candidate loses and that could yeah. be a pro so natural a natural disaster could cause that problem a fire for example or fires sure. you know that that affect destroy ballots. Um, so uh, an actual disasters might go a number of ways, but I think in general, an actual disaster benefits the, it benefits the wrong way to put it, but it often gives the incumbent an opportunity to demonstrate why they're in office and, and yeah. they should be given more time. What do you think? Well, I think, you
0: know, I think you're right. You
1: can cut both ways. I mean, there's a
0: couple of examples, you know, in Hurricane Andrew hit Florida, George Herbert Walker Bush didn't respond as well as he, maybe could have and that some people said that hurt him in in uh in that case uh 2004 uh florida was hit by another set of hurricanes um francis and charlie and george w bush did a good response to to those and Kerry had to step back from campaigning you know so that moment in time the president gets to to really you know step forward and and the challenger has to sort of take the back seat um but i can have a huge effect on on voter turnout that the the there was a hurricane hurricane that turned into a storm that hit west virginia and virginia on election day itself in 1985 and killed a whole bunch of people uh but voter turnout on that election was something like was below 20 percent you know and they didn't have procedures in place for how to deal with that but you know the election had to stand and you can imagine um what happens if you know in a swing state in this you know all kinds of scenarios happening out know, where, where a certain segment is, is effectively disenfranchised because of a storm uh, and all the shenanigans that follow that so uh
1: but but that was an off. I mean the one. Thing, I mean I think you're correct. I mean I, that was an off year election. If it was 1985, Five, uh, yes, which it was probably was which would have low turnout anyway, or may have low ter- lower turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, as you mentioned earlier, and with regard to one of these scenarios, thanks to early voting, uh, you know, election day isn't quite as significant a date as it once was. I mean you're right. A, a big storm or a disaster on election day would mm-hmm. undoubtedly affect voting in the state's affected, state or state's affected. But I don't, it might not have the impact that the, that the example, yeah. the same impact that that example. Oh, to was, be sure. Was,
0: um, but, you know, especially given that that natural disasters tend to be very localized and, and yeah. given how in a swing state, if it hits a big, a hurricane hits a big city, vis-a-vis rural areas and demographics of parties and voting. Right. Uh, category 11, the usual sus- uh, disruptive suspects, mostly economic stuff.
1: Yeah this was um <laughs> This annoyed we, me because I actually think these are the thing these are the it is a catch all and these are the things that may well determine the election or are probably far more important than mm. the notion of Trump fleeing the country although you know this article <laughs> is clickbait right you know I think a Supreme yes. Court decision or an economic downturn or upswing you know these are things that affect elections we know that they just don't make very good listicles do they um, so so yes I wow. think undoubtedly one of these usual suspects is like is more likely in fact more likely than. Probably these other scenarios we've gone through, but you know, yeah. it wouldn't make for as good an article, and uh, or as much clickbait, or frankly, as good a podcast. Oh, to be sure, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's why. That's all. Uh, podcast is the more important thing. Um, you know, the, the 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 old truism that that you know the thing that really determines elections is the economy. I think that's generally still true. Um, I'm wondering whether it's as true now as it has been historically. Um, and I'm wondering because in part it's about people's perception of the economy and and I think the sort of bifurcation of the politics of the United States has led to people actually viewing the economy in two very different ways. Um, and so, you know, what the economy is actually doing may not actually shape voters' minds as much as, as what they think the economy is doing, which may be shaped as much by which media they're consuming.
1: Uh, that's that's right, David. I mean, I, one of the things that's really interesting to me about this current election, um, and God, it's so far away, I can't believe I'm saying the phrase current election, <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, is I think both sides feel, both major parties and their supporters, you know, and there's, there's data to support this in terms of if you read the media coverage and read interviews and so on each side feels that their candidate is flawed in some way. I'm not Mm. talking about kind of hardcore supporters. I'm just talking about kind of people who lean one way or the other yet, yet each believes that the other guy can't possibly win. (laughs) Um, As, or that, you know, their guy is uniquely placed to beat the other guy. I mean, so, so, so. uh, And if the other guy wins,
0: that there's some kind of shenanigans involved.
1: Right. Right. But, uh, and, 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 That sort of set of beliefs suggests to me that, you know, it's the economy stupid to use the old, um, Mm. you know, James Carville phrase from the Clinton era may not pertain in quite the same way, in part because if you have that kind of mindset, you're looking at economic data and the state of the economy through that lens and interpreting it accordingly. So I think Mm. Trump supporters believe the economy's in terrible shape and Biden supporters think it's okay. Right.
0: And and very few of us are economists and understand actually the, the nuances yeah. of economy anyway. Right. Okay. So that's the, the the list of of eleven weird things that could happen. And uh, we will see uh in retrospect how many of these actually take place over the next year or so. Uh but it will be a fascinating weird election, no doubt. All right, Frank, time for last reps. What you got?
1: Uh David, I wanna I wanna uh Congratulate the nominees for the 2023 Frederick Douglass Book Prize. The Frederick Douglass Book Prize is sponsored by the Gilda Lerman Institute for the Study of Slavery at Yale. It's probably the most prestigious prize for people who write on the history of slavery. And the three nominees this year are Isabella Morales for the book Happy Dreams of Liberty an American Family and Slavery and Freedom. And next play. Yep. Published. Well, they're all excellent books. There were more than almost 80 uh, nominations for this, and we're down to three. uh, Published by Oxford University Press. Simon Newman's Freedom Seekers, Escaping from Slavery and Restoration London, published by the University of London Press. And Simon is a friend of the podcast and an actual friend of the podcasters. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Simon is a very good guy. uh, yeah, very good guy, a very fine scholar. He's Professor Emeritus from the University of Glasgow. He's uh, recently relocated to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but maintains his Scottish connections and is a long-time long friend of the pod and, and, as I say, friend of ours. There's a real Scottish theme here. And then there's a book, I mean, you might have heard of it, uh, <laughs> uh, by David Silkenite called Scars on the Land, an Environmental History of Slavery uh, in the American South. Somebody must have bribed uh, the judges. Um <laughs> Also published by Oxford University Press. So this is a good list for OUP. Uh, so, David, congratulations. Oh, for thank this. you. This is, this is a BFD. It's a big I, deal. I, I, thank um, you. I'm, I'm so very happy and, and honored and surprised. Um, and so so when, tell us about the timing. When? when uh, yes. Well, first of all, when did they tell you?
0: They told me like a week ago. So okay. I've had to, I had to keep quiet about it until the official announcement came out early this week. Uh, um yeah, they're having they're gonna announce the, the winner of the prize in November, and then they are having an award ceremony in, in February. Fabulous. So, yes. Well, congratulations, uh, David. Well, I mean, you
1: congratulations know, to Isabella Morales and Simon Newman as Newman, well. Yes, I, I'm I'm speaking to I'm, you right now, and you're a dear <laughs> friend, and I'm really, really pleased for you.
0: Well, I'm I'm very honored by this. And and you know, Fred Fred, of course lived down the street from both of us. So I feel you know maybe maybe he's tapping me on the shoulder from the great beyond or something. But well, well,
1: and, and Annette Gordon Reed has suggested to me at one time that Frederick Douglass might be the greatest American who ever lived. Uh, that's a subject for another podcast. podcast. but, but uh, you know, just ponder that. That he's he's definitely in the run. Yep. Um well,
0: thank you, Frank. I'm very honored by that. Uh what do you what, have? David, my, my last drop, I wanna um uh, I guess, bid a fond uh, uh, farewell to to our fellow podcasters whose podcast uh, is is leaving the airwaves or podcast waves or streams or whatever it is. Uh, the podcast Now and Then is coming to an end. This was a podcast that's been around for about two years, uh, hosted by Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Friedman, both uh, dear friends of ours and, and really great podcasters. Um, they they both, uh, as many listeners know, been on other podcasts before now and then, but this was sort of a uh, all-star team-up kind of podcast, but uh, but they've done about, I think, you know, 100-something episodes and are, are unfortunately having to, to close shop uh, at the end of the month. But I want to uh, shout them out for, for some, some really great episodes and uh, uh, thank them for, 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 for doing that.
1: I agree. Great podcast, and they will be missed.
0: They will be. Well, I'm sure they will find homes and other podcasts in the future. We will see. Uh, they're both welcome to join us at the Whiskey Rebellion if they feel so inclined. But uh, I think we're, we're much more low rent Garage Band than than their their usual digs. So yeah, slum it with us. Right until next week, Frank.
1: Cheers. Till next week, David.
0: The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano.
1: David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available
0: on iTunes, Stitcher and Popbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.